Hey y'all, before we jump into today's episode, we would like to invite you to a special event we're hosting on May 30th called Women in Whiskey. Join us for an adult field trip filled with Southern fun at the Jack Daniels Distillery right here in our home state of Tennessee. Get ready to learn while sipping. We will be taking a private tour of the distillery, enjoy a barbecue lunch on the beautiful hillside, and partake in early happy hour with cocktails provided by Jack Daniels as we listen in on a conversation with women who work in the industry. The conversation will be led by yours truly, your hosts of the Steel Magnolias podcast. Learn more about the event at steelmagnoliaspodcast.com. You can grab your tickets there and we cannot wait to see you on May 30th. And now on with the show. Donald Davis was born in Waynesville, North Carolina, a small town in the mountainous region of Western North Carolina. He received a BA from Davidson College and a Master of Divinity degree from Duke University Divinity School. Davis served as a Methodist minister in High Point, North Carolina for over 20 years before retiring to become a professional storyteller. He has recorded over 25 storytelling albums and written several books. His long career as a teller and his promotion of the cultural importance of storytelling through seminars and master classes has led to Davis being dubbed the Dean of Storytelling. He has appeared on National Public Radio, CNN, and ABC's Nightline. Davis is a strong advocate of storytelling, not just the profession, but also storytelling in everyday life. He feels that we connect with one another through the stories that we tell each other across the family dinner table. So meet us all at the table now. I'm Lainey. And I'm Laura Beth. And we are... Steel Magnolias, the strength of steel with the grace of a magnolia. We are here to have uplifting conversations about life in the South, and we've got plenty of room at our table, so pull up a chair. Well, good morning, Mr. Donald Davis. Good morning. So good to have you on the show with us. Thank you. So many questions that I have for you, but let's just start with, you're a North Carolina guy. Yes. Tell us, why do you think the storytelling culture is so strong in Appalachia? Well, uh, storytelling is strong uh, whenever uh, identity is more important than fortune. And what I mean is this, wherever you live, if you go to a party, if the conversations are about, how's your mama? You know, what are you going to do to that house over there? Uh, it, it, they're about people and places. Then story is very strong in that culture. Uh, if you go to a, a party and the conversation is about, um, can, are you going to get a raise next year? Or can you afford that mortgage? Uh, it's or about fortune. You're not in a story culture. So, um, you know, in, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, we're in an identity culture. The, the important question is, who are you? Where'd you come from? Who'd you come from? And that's what a story's about. 
And you'll find the same thing, say, in an ethnic neighborhood in New York City. Yeah. The question is, you know, who are you? Where'd you come from? Who did you come from? Uh, you won't find it in the suburbs of Atlanta, where everything is going to be about, you know, wages and uh, and and uh, sending kids to college and uh, and uh, how much uh, uh, of a mortgage we can afford. So that's that's the that's the watershed right there, and. Um, so we find it, you find it strong, say on the down east coast of Maine, you find it across, you know, the lumberjack band of the, of the upper Midwest. Uh, you find it in the Southern Appalachians. Uh, we find it any place where that uh, identity question is the primary question of conversation. That is remarkable. I have never heard it put that way, but everything you just described makes crystal clear sense. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm wondering is, do you have any thoughts if a community moves away from that identity Mm -hmm. culture, Mm -hmm. is there any way to ever rejuvenate it or restore it? Well, what happened is, you know, one of the biggest uh, migration uh, cycles uh, that's ever happened is that, uh, you know, Scots-Irish migration cycle coming in in the early 1700s up to the middle 1700s. And those were people who were uh, moving to preserve their identity. You know, the bloody wicked English had taken their country, our identity is gone. And so when they come with them, what do they bring? They bring all the things that preserve this is who we are making whiskey in the hollers, the same thing the Scots were doing, you know, up there. And the whole issue about whiskey was not morality. It was about taxation. And see, even to this day, who deals with alcohol? It's taxation. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. So it goes straight back to that sort of battle between the the Scots and the English up there. The dances that came, the songs that came, the the uh, the uh, stories that came because those the the food ways that came because those are all the things that define this is who we are uh, when people move to preserve when people move as fortune seekers they don't bring any of those things they often change their name when they come through migration you know at Ellis Island they Americanize their name. Um, they often make up new stories about where they came from. Um, uh, they often very quickly want to abandon the old language and, and become, you know, immediate English speakers because now, you know, we're seeking our fortune. We're not maintaining our identity. But if you get, you know, another huge migration cycle that's about identity maintenance is Jewish migration where, you know, where every attempt, and, and then when we think about slavery, uh, you know, the, the, the two ways you enslave people is by taking away from them their ability to seek their fortune and taking away from them their identity. That's right. And so that's why story is so important in, wow. in, in any slave population and why preserving, you know, music, preserving food, preserving anything that defines let's remember who we are mm-hmm. where did we come from who did we come from and so those things are so so really really important mm. it's interesting one of the things that comes to my mind is and 
may be interesting to you as a former 20 year plus minister, <laughs> the wisdom of God to, um, in, in his word include remembrances Oh yeah, and yeah. in yeah. a lot of the gatherings. Yeah. And when we come down through, you know, we come to those places in the old Testament where you have all these begats, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. So what is that about? It's remember who we came from. Yeah. Who did we come from? Where did we come from? And as we follow, especially, you know, those old Testament stories that come on and on and on and on and on and on again and again, they look back with those identity questions. We're the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth. We're the people who survived uh, in, in captivity in Egypt. We're yep. the people who came from here, who came from those. And so those are so, so, so important all the mm -hmm. way through. Mm -hmm. So great. And when, I'm, and when I'm working even with a business, uh, I want uh, even new employees to learn the stories. And, and these stories may be 100 years old of the people who founded that business. Yes. You know, who were the people who started so-and-so bank in a certain town? And what was their motivation? They, yes. You know, why, you know, why did they do it? Mm -hmm. Why did they do it? What were the troubles they had? What were the successes they had? Because that's, that's, that's part of our identity culture. And if you just jump in and say, okay, let's look at the bottom line. How can we change that? You're missing you know, a whole bunch of what really brings people into a place. Because what brings people, what brings you into a place is the feeling of whether you emotionally are appreciated and whether you emotionally belong there. So, for example, when you go to the doctor, you really need to need two things. One is you need to get well. But the other thing is you need to tell your story. Mm. And if you don't get to tell your story, you're going to go to another practice or you're going to keep coming back again because that's a, that's an equal need. Mm. Uh, you know, when, we, when you go to get your car fixed, uh, you want to get stand there and tell your story about how long it's been making this noise, when it makes this noise, who else drives the car, what you think is wrong, things that may have nothing to do with fixing the car, but they're our, they're, they're our needs, it's our story needs uh, wow. that are just part of the way we're made. That is and, so fascinating. Yeah, you know, and if you bring, you know, you bring, you know, one of the grandchildren brings her new boyfriend home for Thanksgiving, and the, the way he's in or out is the way in which he attends to listening to the stories around the table. That's right. If he get, yeah. If he goes in the other room and turns on a football game, he'll never be back again. <laughs> but if he sits there and he asks questions, well, tell me more about weird uncle Ralph, you know, well, tell me about that house where your granddaddy lived. It's not there anymore. Is it? Well, he's in then because yep. see, that's, that's the, he's emotionally accepting and, and being, being curious about the whole family and wants to be there. Yeah. So good. Wow. You're speaking all of our love languages of curiosity it's all, and it's, it just, you know, remain present listening. And yeah, yeah. Oh, this yeah. is, this is good. Yeah. I'm loving this. Yeah. Well, storytellers like to gather too. They mm -hmm. like yeah. to gather and, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. So one of the ways that we found you is from the 50th annual international storytelling festival right, right, right. here in our home state in Jonesboro, <laughs> Tennessee. 
It's mm-hmm. upcoming early October, October yep. 7th through 9th. And you are one of the featured storytellers at that event. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes that event so special? Oh, it's a, it's a, well, first of all, it's kind of like a, a reunion gathering, not just of tellers, but of people who love story. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's the national festival, people tend to, you know, come from all over the country and around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody comes from all over the place. And for that reason, it's, it's mostly an adult audience because, you know, when people are flying in from California and, and England and places like that, they tend to be adults instead of whole families coming. Yeah. Uh, so we have, it's largely an adult audience. And uh, on the one hand, it's the easiest audience ever because people know why they're there. Mm-hmm. They love stories mm-hmm. and they're wonderful listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's the hardest audience ever <laughs> because people have heard everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they've heard every body's version of every story and you can't fool them you can't trick them they're wonderful wonderful listeners and they're so, so great to play with it's a I feel like I'm you know throwing out a story like a like a rope to the audience and they're grabbing the other end of it and we're pulling it up between us and we're kind of walking the story back and forth they may never say anything out loud but their laughter and their posture and their silence is just um so it's a, being in that audience is different from say listening to a recording mm-hmm. because you're surrounded by people who are who are listening with you and and you feel people people laughing beside you or you feel people around you with this pause of just deep silence and it's a very different listening experience not, not just for tellers but also for listeners mm-hmm. so it's a very special event um, I've been there 42 years out of the 50. Wow. And, um, and, and actually, even though the festival didn't happen for two years during COVID, uh, my wife and I chose to go to Jonesboro those weekends anyway, Sweet. because we wanted to visit the merchants up and down the street, mm-hmm. let them know we missed them and we missed being there and that we didn't just come to town for our own benefit, that we come to town knowing we come you know, for their benefit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I play in a little band during that weekend, the Jonesboro Novelty Band, sort of on the side. And so last year, the festival wasn't happening. But on that Saturday, we set up down on Main Street and we played for a while in the afternoon. Wow. And, and then all the merchants had a special event uh, that, that afternoon and evening where they stayed open late and had, uh, had drinks and tapas in the different shops in town. And, and so I got to go around and visit and be with people because it's not just about, you know, showing up and getting paid and leaving. It's about community. Yeah. And so uh, even though we couldn't have, you know, thousands of people there, uh, my wife and I as two people could go mm-hmm. and, um, and, 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 and visit with people. Have a so little family really reunion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was very important. Yeah. That's I'm wonderful. actually there every year for the whole week. Uh, every week there's a teller in residence in Jonesboro from spring through fall. And I'm always the teller in residence for the week of the festival because a lot of people come early, Mm -hmm. uh, especially people with RVs, you know, getting set up, having a good Mm -hmm. time. People who want to come to town and shop before the big crowds get there. Mm -hmm. So in normal weeks, the teller in residence does a 
a performance at two o'clock each day. Uh, and so I do three performances a day. Um, uh, let's say 11, two and four, uh, Monday through Thursday. Wow. And then on Wednesday night, uh, we have a big performance in one of the tents that's already put up. And uh, even though the festival doesn't start until Friday, uh, Wednesday night, we can easily have uh, 1,200 people there, wow. you know, already, already on Wednesday night, because they're just getting there for the week, the festival mm -hmm. week and every, the feeling of that time period. You know? What a fun time. It's an amazing time. Mm -hmm. Wonderful wow. time. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious about this bow tie. This seems to be oh, a kind yeah. of signature garment <laughs> for you. Tell us about this bow tie. You seem to always have well, one on. Every, every picture of me that's taken from the time I'm like a three-year-old dressed up for church, I'm always wearing a bow tie. And one of the most influential people in my life in childhood was my Uncle Grover. He was my oldest relative. He was my dad. My dad was born in 1901. And Uncle Grover was his oldest brother, and he was born New Year's Day, 1885. And that was just my uncle. And I, you know, grew all up with him. He was a lawyer who never went to law school, just read law and took the bar exam and practiced into his 90s. And he always wore a hand-tied bow tie. And he showed me, uh, here, here's, the, here's my tie for this evening. I just wear them when I'm working. See, I don't have one on now because we're just playing. But <laughs> by tonight, I'm, I'm, I do a recording session to this evening for a show called Appleseed that is a, a storytelling program on WBYU radio. Okay. Uh, so this is the tie tonight. It'll be a pink shirt. And this tie is black with some flamingos on it. So oh, it'll so be ready for tonight. So my uncle Grover taught me how to tie, you know, a bow tie and gave me some of the first ones I got. And then right on from then, it, it's, it kind of says you're here to do something important, but you're different from the ordinary. Mm, yeah. So when I go in to do school shows and they see me, they know I must be there to do something important, but I don't look like the principal or I don't look like any of the teachers. Uh, so it's just a different kind of, of mark. I love it. And, um, when I, when I'm, when I'm signed by, uh, by ASL, you know, signers for, uh, for, uh, deaf people in the audience, mm -hmm. their sign for me is a sign that goes like this. I you love know, it. That's it. The so fake and the bow tie. Already, yeah, that's I what they've that. already invented <laughs> to do that. Precious. Well, you know. well, would you be willing to share a little story with our listeners? Well, let's see. Um, most of the stories that I have are are mostly about 30 minutes long. Okay. But let me see if I can tell you just a little story, a little short story or a little anecdote. Um, I went home from school on the first day of school. And that night we sat down for supper and my dad looked at me and he said, well, you went to school today. Did you meet the principal? And the problem with that question was, I didn't know what the word principal meant. Okay. So I had no idea whether I'd met the principal or not. So I said to my daddy, I said, I don't know. What is the principal? And he said, well, the principal is the person who is in charge of you at school. And I knew right then who it was. I knew it was Miss Annie Ledbetter. 
Miss Annie Ledbetter was sort of a, you know, substantially built woman. Um, pants never touched her legs. Uh, she had five dresses. She had a Monday dress and a Tuesday dress and a Wednesday dress and a Thursday dress and a Friday dress. And, and every day, you know, her dresses got brighter through the week. And her Friday dress was a red dress. It was sort of this double knitty stuff that could go in and out with the tide. And it had a, it had little white stripes that went up and down, little white stripes went back and forth. And one day Harris Prevo told her she looked like a big brick building. And she just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And, you know, it was years before I realized how wonderful it is to start first grade with a teacher who knows how to laugh. Mm -hmm. But my daddy said, no, she's not the principal. She's just your teacher. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, she takes care of me. That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. He said, no, the principal doesn't just take care of one group. He said, the principal takes care of everybody, all the students, and also all the teachers. And then I knew for sure who it was, is Miss Calhoun. Miss Calhoun lived in the lunchroom. Mm. We'd never seen her anywhere else. She wore this white uniform that was the same color as the white government surface flower we got. And this white, you know, uh, heavyweight uh, hairnet that was like, you know, the same color as the government surplus lard we got. And uh, every day she would make homemade yeast rolls. And what you hoped was you got to go on a little errand and you could go sneak through the lunchroom because the show was watching her make yeast rolls. She had this huge, big stainless steel uh, like a big bowl. And, and I have that bowl now because my mother taught at Hazelwood school and years later they were throwing things away and I rescued that bowl and it is big. You could bathe twins in it. It is huge. And she would have this big mountain of living yeast dough and her hands would be down in there and her hand, her, her arms were real floppy and her, 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 her hands, her arms were the same color as the dough. So you couldn't tell where the dough stopped and she started and she'd be going around and all of a sudden she'd go squirt and a big row would fall in the pan, squirt, big row fall in the pan and she'd fill up a whole pan and then she'd paint the top with melted government surplus butter and bake them and the, oh, they smell so good from one end of the building to the other. And you know, back then we didn't have breakfast at school. So if a teacher saw a little kid and knew that that little child hadn't had anything to eat, a teacher would say, sweetheart, go down there and see Miss Calhoun. And then come back in a little while, maybe about 10 o'clock in the morning with a big old fat hot roll with butter running out of it. And their whole life would be improved after that. <laughs> and I said, it's Miss Calhoun. My daddy said, no, she's not the principal. She's the lunchroom lady. <laughs> I said, well, she takes care of everybody. That's who you said the principal was. I thought it was her. My dad said, let me try one more time, see if I can explain it. He said, the principal, it's not like he owns the school, but it seems like it. The principal's not the king of the school, but it seems like it. The principal is in charge of the buses and the playground and the building and all the teachers and all the children. And then I knew for sure who it was. 
it was Haskell Davis. Haskell was my daddy's first cousin. And he's the first person we met when we got to school every day. He would stand there and he'd hold the door open with his arm and we'd go to school under his arm. And as you come under his arm, he'd say, good morning, little Davis. Good morning, little Messer. Good morning, little Rathboat. Good morning, little Moody. Good morning, little Morgan. And he'd say, feel my muscle, feel my muscle. Haskell weighed about 95 pounds. <laughs> about 93 pounds was red hair and freckles. <laughs> and he, as skinny as he was, he had a bicep that was like a ball bearing. Wow. And we'd reach up and we'd touch that muscle. It was hard as a rock. And then we behaved all day. <laughs> because Haskell had the amazing power of multiple location. Mm. He could be in the downstairs boys' bathroom and upstairs in the library at the same time. <laughs> he could be in the lunchroom and out where you burn the trash at the same time. <laughs> he was everywhere. And I knew he was the king of the school because Haskell was in charge of the throw-up compound. <laughs> he kept it in this big barrel in a, in, a, uh, in a closet in the hall. And, you know, we didn't have 911. If the teacher had trouble, they'd just open the door and holler, Haskell! And here he'd come down the hall with a dustpan full of throw-up compound and a little broom with a sawed-off sawed off arm on it. And he'd come in and shake that on the offense and get it all up and he's gone. <laughs> and I thought, he has got to be the principal. And I said to my daddy, it's Haskell Davis. And my daddy just laughed and said, no, Haskell's the janitor. Said we would call him the custodian but Haywood County just can't afford four syllables. <laughs> and I said, well, I give up. Who is it? My daddy said, it's Mr. Leatherwood, our neighbor. I hadn't even seen Mr. Leatherwood at school. I didn't even know he was there. And besides, I thought he already had a title. I thought his title was Larry's daddy. <laughs> I had no idea he was the principal. <laughs> I said, Daddy, I guess I just got it wrong. I just don't know. I just don't know what you're supposed to call somebody. And he looked at me and he said, no, son, you got it right. Because, you know, if something needs to be done, it doesn't matter who does it. And you also know that everybody you meet in this world just has one of two titles. Everybody you meet is either somebody I'm scared of or somebody who might help me. Mm. And what you need to do is spend as little time as you can with people you're scared of and as much time as you can with people who might help you. Love wow. it. Wow. When I started the first grade, my dad was 50 years old okay. because he was 44 when I was born. But he was old enough to have a lot of wisdom that, you know, the the 27 year old daddies never had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so good. I love it. So Thank good. you. Thank so you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank so you. precious. 
It's a good question to ask your child, though, on the first day, because if they've met mm-hmm. the principal, that tells yes. a lot, right? <laughs> yes. I like where how you live. started that. Yeah, where we live on Ocracoke Island, our principal actually lives right up the street from us, and she has a little boy. And uh, when before he started the school, when he was in, in preschool, the, the report came home one day that uh, that uh, that he had he had uh, Nicholas had shoved a boy at school, and uh, um, so so uh, Leslie said Nicholas, did you shove somebody at school? And he said yes, and and she said, did you shove him first? He said no, I shoved Brian first, and I shoved Jimmy after that. And that's her, <laughs> so when they were asking about, he was about the fourth one he had shoved. <laughs> Show oh, that so, so stories come from everywhere. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is so great. Ocracoke Island. Yep. Never gotten yep. to the Outer Banks, but oh, it's a wonderful hideout. Oh. You know, we're on the road. We're on, this trip is six weeks long, and then we're home for a week, and then we go out for another six-week trip. Uh, we've been through eleven states, twelve states on this trip so far. Um, and so, so when we go home, going to Ocracoke, since we got on the ferry, it's like a time machine. It's, you know, three hours on the ferry, and then we disappear into a little community. We have a wintertime population of between six and 700 people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, don't, you don't pass there on the way somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? So it's our quiet uh, disappearance place. Uh, to be there and the people who live there don't care what I do when I go off into the world so I'm I'm good when I get home there pretty sweet Mm -hmm. do you still hear a high tide or brogue there a little bit um it's really disappearing you know television is what's bringing the end because television is a stronger speech influence on kids than their grandparents are Mm -hmm. um so it's hard to find somebody say pretty much under the age of 60 who really has that brogue left though you know the kids in school are are always learning about the importance of their language uh, but the television influence is um yeah. is mm-hmm. so strong and, and you know all, all over our country that's what's happening the the regional accents are are so disappearing yeah. completely because that that we have that national influence instead of local influence mm-hmm. as as kids growing up yeah. mm-hmm. so true yeah they even did a, a small piece here in nashville recently that showcased mm-hmm. different news anchors from about the yeah. the early 80s to today and you can yeah. hear the difference yeah. in in their oh, yeah. dialect and how much it yeah. changed it's just yeah. really fascinating yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you've lived in other areas of North Carolina as well. Are there any f- other favorite places in your home state that you like? Well, to- I, you know, I grew up there in the mountains in Waynesville. My family actually came into that part of the world from Scotland and Wales in the middle 1700s. And I still have family and relatives there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went off to college at Davidson College and I went to graduate school at Duke. And then as a Methodist uh, minister, uh, I lived in Lexington, in High Point, uh, way back in the mountains in Cherokee County, the last little county in the tail end of North Carolina, then in Charlotte, and then back in High Point before I retired. So uh, Ocracoke is the only place in the east end of North Carolina, uh, and that's the extreme east end. So here and there, 
And there's no other state, you know, to me like North Carolina, because it's my family home for, for generations. Yeah. That's, that's the place. Yeah. Such varied, beautiful landscape there. In it, is. Mm, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. Well, you're also, we have listeners all over. So for any of our listeners that are in these areas, I wanted to mention you're going to be at the Athens, Alabama Storytelling Festival yes. mm-hmm. in October 18th right. to 22nd. And That's even a in, wonderful festival. Good, good. Yeah, well, and then you're even going to be in Midland, Texas at the Midland yes. Storytelling Festival, December 1st through 3rd. Right. And this week, I'm, I'm in uh, Lehigh, Utah for the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, which is the other festival that's probably, you know, as large as the Jonesboro Festival. Okay. Um, they count things differently because here there's a lot of outreach into schools where we come, we're here early. The festival really starts Thursday night, but I have things starting tonight and then tomorrow uh, as we go on through the week. And this is a wonderful festival as well. They're they're just all over the place. Oh, wow. Well, now your full schedule, we'll put in our show notes at um, where everybody can see the full schedule because you're oh, okay. even in North Carolina at yep. libraries and different yep. things like Here that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to make it to one of these good storytelling festivals. Yes, you need to do that. I think um, I would love that. Come down there to Athens. That's not very far. Yeah. That's yeah. just, yeah. just, just down the road from here. It is. Yeah, that's actually closer than Jonesboro for us. So. It's a, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's just a long hour down there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Donald, thank you for sharing your talent with us today. Thanks for doing and- this for the preservation in story that you've been so actively a part of for um, 40 plus years so well, thank, thank you, you thank you, thank you. we thank will you. Um, we will hope that our listeners do check you out and be blessed as well so Donald peace be with you and peace would be with you all as well <laughs> <laughs>